0: In this edition of the Futures Work podcast, I sat down with Ju Chong Tan, Professor of Labour and Public Law at the University of Melbourne. Ju Chong had been in the University of Bristol to present his new paper on equality and community for migrant labour, and I thought it would be a perfect opportunity to sit down with him and discuss his recent paper, as well as his research on labour provisions and trade agreements. I opened the discussion by asking him, What is he working on at the moment?
1: So one of the uh, central projects I have uh, right now is really trying to think through the ideas of uh, equality and community uh, for migrant workers uh, in this context where you know we see migrant workers you know caught up in a situation of abusive dependence where you have uh, uh, you know conditions of work marked by severe exploitation, serious breaches of rights and discrimination uh, where migrant workers in political debates are often feared and denigrated and yet we have got this sustained increase in global migration and uh, one of the central questions i'm pondering is really how do we think about equality in community in this context mm-hmm. you know whether there's a place for these ideals and if so how should we understand them
0: mm. yeah because you you did a talk um, uh, yesterday afternoon here at the university of bristol and some of the Interesting things that came out of that around, around migrant labour, particularly around some of the challenges that we face. And one thing that you mentioned in your um, in your paper, you know, within sort of this current political climate, you know, migration has become essentially a hot topic of debate here. Mm-hmm. Um, as you see in, in Europe in particular, the rise of far right parties and immigration yeah. being a major aspect of their mm-hmm. mandate mm-hmm. and some would argue a major aspect of their appeal as well. Mm-hmm. So, what would you say that are some of the major challenges that we face at the moment are surrounding migrant labor?
1: Yeah, I think um, one of the major challenges is actually not to naturalize mm. um, this the process of labor migration, that uh, firstly, not to sort of naively assume that uh, labor migration would uh, uh, produce this uh, triple win mm. uh, as is often sold, and therefore, I think really having quite robust regulation, you know that uh, respects uh, migrant workers as uh, workers, uh, as human beings, and also for many of them as members of uh, their receiving countries.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Give us a sort of flavour here about um, sort of sectoral context, about some of the empirical um, aspects of conditions of work of these migrant labors.
1: Yeah. So one, one of the ones often said about migrant workers uh, and really, reference to the concentration in particular occupations, in particular industries, you know, what's often referred to as "treaty jobs," right? Dirty, mm. demeaning, and dangerous mm. jobs. Is that you know, questions often asked: Why do they work in these jobs? And, and then, then the response is the common response is to say that uh, well, migrant workers are willing to actually uh, perform these jobs because um, even if these jobs, however poor their working conditions are. Um, uh, afford better opportunities and uh, advance the, advances their economic uh, position relative to what it would have been in the country of origin. Mm. And some of my work, which in collaboration with uh, Judy Fudge, who's now at McMaster's University, has been to sort of, sort of challenge this view about seeking to explain the concentration of migrant workers in these treaty jobs. Uh, that it's not simply the question of the choices that are made by migrant workers, and in, indeed it's really due to the the how migrant labor is actually and migratory processes more generally are being regulated and particularly uh, the two forms of regulation that we foreground one is really the what we call the conditionalities so these really refer to the vulnerabilities that migrant workers experience and importantly the vulnerabilities that result from the regulation of the receiving states, hmm. yeah? Uh, so we think about the visa restrictions, for example, yeah? So that's one important source of regulation we foreground, trying to understand this concentration of migrant workers in these treaty jobs. But the other important um, source of regulation we foreground and really seeks to answer, it's common around the world that migrant workers are not just concentrated in treaty jobs, but they're concentrated in treaty jobs in particular industries, hmm. yeah? Agriculture, construction. Uh, hospitality, domestic work, so on and so forth. And then really uh, the next, next source of regulation that we foreground is rather obvious one when you look at that pattern is that sectoral regulation. Hmm. That these are industries where there's a concentration of migrant workers which are generally industries with precarious work norms. And is that precarious work norms, uh, in our view, that generate a demand for migrant labour and therefore the supply of migrant labour meets that demand, that pre-existing demand, if you like, Mm. of these industries with precarious work norms. And why is migrant labor particularly attractive? Because for those workers working in those industries, they suffer from various conditionalities. Mm. Yeah, particularly limitations to the ability to actually stay in their receiving countries and also limitations in terms of their access to social services and social security.
0: Yeah, because I guess that's one of the sort of fundamental issues there, where if they're going into precarious work contexts and they're not afforded the rights of the host country, which they're actually residing in, then that becomes, you know, it almost exacerbates these kind of exploitative uh, practices there. So it it
1: exacerbates it and also explains why they're more willing to work than nationals, because nationals enjoy access to those Social services
0: and to the security provision. Hmm. So, what about in terms of differences between those who are going for? So, most say most migrant labor is associated with these low skilled jobs. In terms of low skilled versus high skilled jobs, have you seen sort of uh, significant differences here or are these things st- exploitation is still part of this?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, my, my research is focused mainly on Australia hmm. and you, you, see, you see differences, of course, because I think. Um, those conditionalities that are imposed, uh, they're a source of vulnerability, but of course, they can be countervailing sources. So mm. if somebody has stronger market power, perhaps through their high level of skills, uh, you know, so, so for example, a case study I did uh, together with various colleagues on nurses mm. and they're sort of, you know, sort of uh, medium-high skill if you like, if you think about it, and they were on employer-sponsored visas. And employer-sponsored visas are a great source of vulnerability because your dependent employer uh, to be able to stay in that country, mm. and but what we saw in that particular context, of how certain countervailing sources were important to actually counteract that vulnerability. One was the level of skill, but more importantly, um, the nursing sector in Australia is highly unionised. Mm. More than ninety percent of the uh, of nurses are members of the the relevant union, and and they also are employed by large organisations, in many cases also public sector organisations, and that too can be a countervailing source. So you see these things being played out um, in terms of the impact of those conditionalities, vulnerabilities.
0: And so what do you think about in terms, you mentioned there about trade unionism, actually it's quite a nice um, segue to to a question around, okay, well, what what role do you think that organised labour have have to play in here in terms of organising migrant labour, which has traditionally been an area which is, low union density, yeah. low worker power in the general sense. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think they have a crucial role, but I think as you know what you've alluded to that it's a role that's uh fraud hmm. in a way. I mean uh a fraud in practice at least. One because uh whether because unwillingness or inability to organize in those particular sectors but also the other source of it, and it's not, I'm not uh, trying to condemn the whole union movement here, but at least we see the strands of uh, uh, of nativism, mm-hmm. even amongst uh, the trade union movement. Uh, you know, you might hear, you know, slogans like, you know, um, uh, British jobs or British workers mm-hmm. or, you, uh, you know, Australian jobs or Australian workers and so on and so forth. So I think it's fraught in practice. But at the same time, there are very strong progressive strands in the trade union movements. So I think the role is important, but I think the trade union movement is to meet those challenges in practice and also in terms of discourse. Yeah. yeah? And uh, in my home state of Victoria, in Australia, they, um, I think they also there's now experimentation with different strategies where the trade unions are organizing the workers, but they're also supporting other organizing, organizing initiatives that are not directly through trade unions. Right. So what I mean by that, for example, there's a, a migrant workers center that's been set up. that's strongly supported by the trade union movement, but they don't operate as a union per se, if you like. Yeah, but yeah. they engage in intensive community organizing. And I think uh, it's re- thinking about those other strategies to reach out to migrant workers, I think that's uh, essential.
0: Yeah, because that was one of the nice things that I, I found so interesting about your talk yesterday was was the focus on sort of alternatives here Mm. so and and that's the main focus of both the futures of work blog as well as this podcast is about the alternatives to what we have at present so what are the alternative futures that we can um you know that we can almost will into existence for for lack of a better way of saying it so okay so under sort of current political climates at the moment you know what how can we sort of suggest an, an alternative to what is the established norm here yeah I think one of the central points I made in the uh,
1: lecture is that the understanding of community is pivotal. Mm. When you think about the anti-migrant sentiment, uh, what's often called populism and so on and so forth, is that it is often predicated on an understanding of community. Mm. But that understanding of community is often exclusionary, is often uh, narrow in terms of it might be based on certain ethno-nationalistic understanding of what community is. And I think it's important to counterpose a more inclusive and open understanding of community uh, that sees migrants, even when they're not citizens, as members of the community. Mm. So one of the arguments I put in the lecture is that to see membership of the community being based on uh, what a, one of the leading academics in Areas Joseph Cairns has described as social membership. Mm. And it's actually not a difficult notion. It simply means uh, the connections and the interests and relationships one has in living in a particular place. Right. Yeah. And under this particular approach, if you you have ongoing residence in a particular country, uh, then you're considered a member. Mm. Yeah. And you might not doesn't mean you have the identical rights to citizens, but you have a strong claim to equality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you not only that, and importantly, and this was the other part of the talk, was that to think about community being based on the ethic of care, that because these are members of the society and of the community, they should be considered as such. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, so uh, I think that's important in terms of alternatives, that, uh, that rather than having this um, exclusionary, uh, contractionary, and possibly sometimes racist understanding of community, we want you to much more open, inclusive, and more just.
0: Okay, so there's definitely a focus here on inclusion rather than exclusion, yeah. and social membership being of your membership to a community rather than to a state or mm. whatever it might be yeah so um practicalities here yeah okay so yeah. how you know um are there any organizations sort of working on these kind of things at the moment how do we sort of you know ch- i know these these are tough questions but like mm. how do we you know how do we change the discourse around these things
1: yeah I think, you know, in the paper I sort of drew various examples. Like for example the uh, the recent uh, global compact on uh, regular safe and orderly migration where you have acknowledgement of uh, migrants being uh, active members of the societies in the receiving countries, mm. not not just in the countries of origin. So I think as this course one can actually there are, you know, at the international level sort of movements towards this. But I think the other part of it too is is really how the in fact some of the principles I'm advancing are actually reflected in some of the uh, uh, social institutions that we actually live in. So, um, for example, in many countries, uh, in local government, uh, it is residence or the right of residence that actually enables a person to have the right to vote. Mm. Yeah. And not not citizenship per se and so on and so forth, right? So that's... And while it... Historically, it was based on uh, really about a property franchise, but one can understand it as being based on the fact that ongoing residence creates an interest that must be recognized. Mm. Yeah. And um, we see in many countries that where permanent residents are uh, recognized virtually as equals to, to citizens, including, you know, United you know, Kingdom, mm. uh, Australia, and, and so on and so forth. So I think part of it is recognizing that this is not uh, completely uh, sort of a fresh or completely uh, a set of proposals that is completely divorced from the status quo. Mm. They're actually reflected in various forms in terms of the status quo. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, uh, in terms of uh, organizations to move forward in thinking about this, I think, again, the, the usual uh, social institutions and those are political parties, uh, organizations in civil society they need to be talking differently about it hmm. and I think importantly in the, the lecture that um, I gave was that this principle community and this was what I expressly addressed um, it's not too vague to use principles for actions hmm. yeah okay apart from the level of discourse um, you know what I also proposed was that uh, it's important that you know receiving countries act in a caring way and hmm. What was important about that was not just especially recognizing migrants as uh, members of the society, but seeing them in those terms. Mm. Now, this has got very concrete applications in terms of how policy is made. Mm. You don't just see migrants as units of labor addressing labor shortages or units of population to meet demographic challenges. You have to say look we're recognizing as members of society and what's the impact on you and importantly you need to give them a voice mm. particularly with policies that affect them and again very concrete measures can be you know uh that flow from from that particular proposition
0: mm. yeah very interesting yeah. yeah so as you mentioned there about global compact and i think that's um one thing that i'm particularly interested in is is about um, labor standards and mm. these sort of multilateral institutions, yeah. um, and you talked about in your talk about the ILO and some of its conventions around migrant labor and and their um, you know their relevance today, basically. Yeah. And so, yeah. so what do you think in terms of the role of of, of, of labor standards, which essentially should define a uh, a floor yeah. that all participants must play along with? Otherwise they, you know, they get fired or whatever, which doesn't necessarily happen in practice. Yes. But it should define that flaw that all member states should be should be working um at least towards that. So what what do you think about that in terms of the role of labour standards and, and other multilateral organizations? Yeah.
1: I I think, you know, international labour standards play a, a vital role. Um, you know, and you know, and, and we know from the 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 tenor and specificity of international labour standards is that uh they they invariably leave a lot of uh, autonomy and discretion to the to the signatory states. Mm. Yeah, And after this, that's important too, in terms of national self-determination. So, yes, international labour standards are important, but it's also important to recognise, of course, circumstances vary in different states, and states should have some degree of discretion uh, uh, in terms of implementing uh, international uh, their obligations under international labour standards. Um, having said all that, I think the presently i think the picture is reasonably pessimistic mm. yeah um you know the the conventions that i i looked at in terms of the talk and the, the conventions dealing with labor migration the 2 ILO conventions and the u.n convention on the protection of the rights of migrant workers and members of the family they all suffer from uh relatively low ratifications mm. um you know might not be, be going too far to saying say that these are really conventions on life support. Yeah. Mm. Uh, at the same time, you see you clearly see with these um uh, documents like the UN Global Compact that there's a desire to lay down some kind of international norms. Mm. Not norms in that so-called hard sense of Indian conventions, but some kind of international understanding. So it's sort of a pessimistic and conflicting scenario, I suppose.
0: Yeah, because yeah, wasn't it um, uh, Guy Ryder, the ILO Director General, recently had his his Director General report focused mm. on migration yeah. to the, to the International Labour Conference, yeah. and I guess a lot of that is part of um, almost, I guess, an appreciation of the lack of, of of hard law in this mm. particular area mm. and almost kind of what you're alluding to there in terms of the, the need to change discourse soft law yeah. the way that you know these norms rather than sort of hard uh, regulatory standards because you know some of these ILO conventions have been around for 60 70 years and have this like you say they're on life support yeah. you know they've had a ha- only a handful of ratifications are they going to now in this more arguably more complex era um And with like you say, like the rise of populism and stuff like that, are countries going to be ratifying these conventions yeah. you know it's it's unlikely in a way, but they do change the way that perhaps national actors can use these standards as leverage in their own countries, like these other alternative organizations that you were saying they might have they can draw some sort of legitimacy yeah. from the the wordings and the content of these standards, yeah.
1: And I think what's important in that particular context is that how these conventions, I think, still stand for quite enduring principles, Mm. yes? I mean, uh, uh, the principle of equal treatment of migrant workers, and that really uh, rests upon uh, what is quite clear, that uh, migrant workers have equal status as workers Mm. vis-a-vis nationals. And then the principle of equal human rights, which is even clearer in the sense that it recognises migrant workers are human beings, yes? Yes. Um, so whatever the utility or the pessimism uh, surrounding these particular instruments in terms of ratifications I think it's important not to lose sight of those that there are enduring principles reflected in these conventions mm. and they should be held on to in terms of h- however we progress
0: yeah so the other thing I wanted to t- talk uh, very briefly about was was some of the other strand of research that you're doing at the moment about is labour provisions yeah. and trade agreements mm. and so Recently, there's been a bit of a sort of resurgence of of interest in in, in trade agreements for obvious reasons, Um, um, you know, more so since failure of the social clause when there was a big rise there and then sort of doled down and now um, they've Mm. sort of come back into the forefront again. And you know, trade agreements with reference to ILO standards or other sort mm-hmm. of um, labor standards could act as a, as a as an element of hard law there. Yeah. So, yeah. what what's your what, what's your take on these labor provisions and trade agreements?
1: Yeah, I think I still hold the view that they have the potential to actually improve labor standards, but I think uh, my view is that uh, as they've manifested themselves right now, they've proved to be ineffectual mm. and. Uh, uh, my recent research has focused on the Labour chapter and the uh, Comprehensive Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement or what was formerly known as the TPP yeah. and you know why is it focused on that particular Labour chapter is because it's pretty much considered the gold standard mm-hmm. Yeah, it's considered to be the uh, the toughest Labour provision of all the various trade agreements and what I've argued and in collaboration with um, Keith Ewing at King's College London is that it really constitutes a form of neoliberal regulation that is full regulation. Right. Yeah. Yeah? Uh, And really simply speaking is that really it has, the Labour chapter uh, provides an artificial regulation, but nevertheless will have an insubstantial impact on the regulatory objectives. Right. Yeah. So you have a chapter that, you know, runs in about, you know, a dedicated chapter, runs in about 14 pages, but really because of how, the 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 qualifications and technicalities built into that chapter that um, our strong argument would be that this will have uh, really minimal to no impact in terms of labor standards Mm. Uh, nevertheless uh, and uh, uh, i think as i said i think there's still potential for labor provisions to actually improve labor standards and what we should be thinking as the next step is how to actually have more robust provisions that provide for meaningful regulation. Mm. And I think key to that is um, having strong pre ratification processes where the baseline is that um, all the signatories, I'm mean, talking here about this comprehensive progressive uh, transparency partnership agreement, mm. that all the signatories are actually in breach in one way or another in relation to the eight ILO fundamental conventions. And that you need to have processes that recognize it as the starting point, mm. and then how do we actually bring them into compliance? All the countries, yes, not just those are seen to be developing countries, right, yeah, right. as opposed to developed countries. I think that somehow these kind of things are seen in a very distorted way, but you know, including countries like Australia, my my home country, which has fundamental features of its um, labor laws, uh, particularly its system of enterprise bargaining. Uh, which involve breaches of the ILO Conventions of freedom Association.
0: Mm. Yeah, well, same as similar to what we're experiencing here also in the UK with the Trade Union Bill, yeah. which is also in, um, well, has been taken to the ILO supervisory mechanisms as being in violation with Conventions 87 and, and, and 98 on, on collective bargaining, especially around, I guess, America as mm. well, which yeah. is um, yeah. a, a country which hasn't uh, ratified... It's only Ooh. ratified two out of eight. Yeah.
1: Uh, and we know that, you know, uh, from the studies there, there are serious breaches, as particularly in the Tisophenia Association. Yeah. And, and and one of the points I made in uh, the seminar today was how that, uh, why this labor chapter in the CPTPP relies upon the 1998 Idol Declaration. And it, that provides very strong sources of flexibility mm. that allows America to say that it's in compliance with the 1998 ILO Declaration, despite the fact that it's only ratified two out of eight ILO fundamental conventions, despite the fact that you know its uh, its labor advisory and trade council has um, concluded that the, the, the country is out of compliance with fundamental labor rights, and yet is able to say without any equivocation that it's in compliance with the 1998 ILO Declaration.
0: Mm so it's almost used as a, as a cop-out you know for, for countries say that we're doing these because of the wording and the content of the of these agreements that's right yeah yeah, yeah. so similar actually to what you might find also in in um in these kind of like these private compliance initiatives mm-hmm. you know yeah. codes of conduct and and, and yeah. so on and so forth which have yeah again these similar kind of wording yeah uh, you know wording that could be Uh, constituted as being against often ILO conventions or or other uh, international conventions on on labour standards because the wording might be that, you know, factories should um, should consider this particular convention rather than being, you know, respect or must be in compliance and these kind of wording. So again, their discourse is there quite key. Exactly. And, you know,
1: know, as an example of the... uh, to illustrate the argument that this is full regulation or mm. what I call legalized minimalism, yeah. yeah. So it takes legal form, but it's about minimalism. Is that you know you have a provision in the labor chapter, for example, where signatories are required to endeavor to encourage wow. uh, <laughs> measures to promote corporate social responsibility. You know, yeah. This is even I called it liquid soft obligations, but perhaps that's <laughs> even being too complimentary.
0: Yeah. Endeavoured to be encouraged. Wow. Yeah. yeah yes. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever that means. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. My last, my last, my last question, which is a, which is a, is a very broad question, but something yeah. which uh, that um, I've been uh, particularly interested in, and and as part of this podcast works quite nicely as, as as a way to people try and think about their own role, and that is our role as academics. Yeah. So we can talk about the futures, and we can talk about the alternatives, mm-hmm. and what needs to be done. Um. And I just want to know about yeah your opinion on this so so yeah. what role do we have to play as academics do we are, should you know are we supposed to be change agents here or yeah. should we be providing support to people that we think are going to be the change agents yeah. so what do you think about this
1: uh, you know i hold a, a view with my my own particular job that uh, a view of academics as intellectuals mm-hmm. and here you know really drawing on you know people have written much more about this about that intellectuals who you know speak to and against power Mm. Yeah, and I think in that particular context, I think what's important, is academics, is really firstly to have a, f- a clear and firm view of what ideals they are aspiring for, or informs their work. Mm. Yeah, and those ideals, uh, those baseline uh, moral understandings, you know, provide the, basically the the framework for you know diagnosis and often the prescription. Mm. Yeah, and and in it's a role that should be orientated, yeah, towards advocating change as framed by these ideals, but one that is also quite an unsettling role, if you like, yeah, mm. where there are tensions uh, between you know what is and what ought to be, um, tensions between in turn navigate this role between. The ideals that one holds, and how to actually speak to the the values of the contemporary values, whether of society or the particular group you're addressing, tensions between being grounded and taking flight. Yeah, and my my view in terms of role, I mean, in all this complexity, is that these tensions should be productive, and productive, and really to you know borrow the words of you know uh, sociologist uh, Eric Olin Wright, productive that in. In that academics and intellectuals, in their work, are constantly oriented towards a real utopia. Mm. You know, uh, 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 you know, a vision that is grounded in the context, in the realities, but a vision that nevertheless seeks to transcend it.
0: Mm. Great. Yeah, thanks very much. <laughs>
1: Jujang, thanks very much for coming into the studio. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Yeah.